Good morning, friends. Today's message is uh, titled simply, The Struggle of Life. It's based on James chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4. I'm going to start out with a rather pithy comment. Life is hard. Does anyone question that? I don't think so. Because we live in a fallen world, nothing works the way it's supposed to. I mean, sin has stained every part of the physical universe and deeply infected the human bloodstream. Things break, our bodies wear out, we grow old, we die. People kill each other, marriages break up, children get hooked on drugs or alcohol or sex or all three. Babies are born with defects that cannot be corrected. Priests molest children, our friends disappoint us, and we disappoint our friends. Or maybe one day we wake up to find out that we're being sued by a former colleague or the boss decides that we just aren't the, quote, right fit, whatever that means. Well, we've been talking about building blocks of the spiritual life for a number of weeks now. Today I'm coming up with the sixth one, with the reality that some Christians would rather not talk about. And there is today the notion that the Christian life should be easy. But i got news for you, it isn't. And whoever said it was. Jesus did say his yoke was easy and burden was light, but that was in comparison to the Pharisees. In any way, an easy yoke is a yoke nonetheless. He also talked about taking up your cross daily, denying yourself and following him, and there's nothing easy about that. Now, lest I be misunderstood, I hasten to say that the Christian life is the best life there is because it's the only true life. To know Jesus is to know God, and to know God is to have eternal life. Jesus himself said that anything you give up will be repaid many times over in this life and much more in the life to come. The paradox is this. If you follow Jesus, you have to lose your life in order to save it. You have to go to the cross every day in order to discover the power of the resurrection. You have to die to find abundant life. You have to reckon yourself dead to sin in order to experience the fullness of life in Jesus. Now, none of this is easy to do. If you think it's easy, it's only because you haven't taken the Bible seriously. Romans chapter 7 speaks of a war going on in the inner life of the believer. and Romans 8.13 commands us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5.17 tells us that the flesh and the spirit are continually at war. Now, Christians traditionally have spoken of the three great enemies they face, the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh. See, the world is out there, and it's all around us. The flesh is inside and loves to answer the call of the world. And it seems like the devil is everywhere. Like First Peter 5 says, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's no wonder that in Acts 14.22, it says that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And some of you may actually remember that great song, Amazing Grace. There's a verse in it that teaches a similar truth. It goes this way, though, through many toils or dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Yes, friends, there are many dangers, toils and snares along the road that leads to heaven. My sixth basic of uh, the spiritual life reminds us that those difficulties are placed in our path for our spiritual benefit. It teaches us that spiritual growth is possible and necessary, but it's not instant it's not easy. There are no shortcuts on the road to glory. As a former coach, I'm sure I've told my players this once or twice over the years, no pain, no gain. 
Now, here are some here are four principles that are going to help us think clearly about our trials. One, because we live in a fallen world, bad things happen to everyone. Second, we have no control over many things that happen to us or to those around us. And third, we do have complete control over how we respond. And four, our response to our trials largely determines our spiritual growth or lack thereof. If you kind of flip this sixth basic over, it looks like this. Struggle in the Christian life is inevitable, lifelong, and ultimately beneficial. It takes a mature Christian to understand this principle, and ironically, it is this principle that makes us mature. Years ago, I learned that when hard times come, be a student, not a victim. The more I pondered those simple words, the more profound they seemed to me. I don't know about you, but many people are professional victims. It seems like our society today, particularly post-election and everything, are always talking about how unfair life is. I mean, a victim says, why did this happen to me? A student says, I don't care why it happened. I want to learn what God's trying to teach me. A victim looks at everyone else and says, life isn't fair. A student looks at life and says, what happened to me could have happened to anybody. A victim feels so sorry for himself that he has no time for other people. A student focuses on helping others so that he has no time to feel sorry for himself. A victim begs God to remove the problems of life so that he might be happy. A student has learned through the problems of life that God alone is the source of all true happiness. In James chapter 1, our text for today, we find practical guidelines that will help us to be students and not victims when hard times come our way. And let's start with this command from James chapter 1 verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, James begins reminding us that sooner or later, probably sooner, we'll all face trials of various sorts. That word face has the idea of falling or stumbling over a problem. Now, no matter who we are or where we live, trouble is just a phone call away. A doctor may say, I'm sorry, you've got cancer, or the voice may inform you that your daughter's been arrested, or you may be fired without warning, or someone you trust may start spreading lies about you. Like it happened to me about a week ago, just driving home, somebody hits me head on. I mean, the list is endless, and unlike Baskin-Robbins, our trials come in more than 32 varieties. How, then, should we respond to these hard times that suddenly come to us? But James offers what appears to be a pretty strange piece of advice. Consider it pure joy. Or in the King James Version, I think it said, count it all joy. Now, you might be thinking, count it all joy, are you nuts? I mean, do you have any idea what I've just been through? Now, I confess to being a little bit bothered by this over the years, so I actually decided to check out the Greek language. And what I found is this, the word joy means, are you ready for this? It means joy. Well, I decided to check out some other translations, and one version said, be very glad, and another said, consider yourselves fortunate. Another one said, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Well, as I considered my own problems with this concept, the thought occurs that counting it all joy when trouble comes is not a natural response. If we want a natural response, we can talk about anger or despair or complaining or getting even or running away. It's just not natural to find joy in hardship. But that's the whole point. James is not talking about a natural reaction. 
He's talking about a supernatural reaction made possible by the Holy Spirit, who enables us to see and to respond from God's point of view. So I conclude then that counting it all joy is a conscious choice we make when hard times come. Now, truthfully, it's probably a choice we'll all have to make again and again and again. And to do it, we have to take a long view of life to understand that what we see is not the final chapter of the story. If we can make the choice to view life that way, then we can make the following statements about our struggles and our trials. One, this is sent from the Lord. Two, this is necessary for my spiritual growth. Now, that first statement reflects a high view of God's sovereignty. I mean, everything that happens to us is either caused by God or sent by God or allowed by God. And if I truly believe that, then I can move on to the second statement and begin to look for ways to grow spiritually. So I want to tell you, don't judge your circumstances by your feelings. Judge your circumstances by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. When you do that, a powerful conclusion emerges, and it's this. These great trials give me great hope that God means a great benefit to me. See, seeing things God's way doesn't cancel your trials. It doesn't turn them into non-trials, but it does transform your evaluation of those trials. You will view them differently because you believe that God intends, through them, to give you a great benefit that could not come any other way. No, No doubt our main problem comes because we misunderstand the word joy. In our contemporary world, the word is virtually a synonym for happiness. Joy, to many people, speaks of like a pep rally or a New Year's Eve bash. I mean, to us, though, joy means the absence of all pain. But that's not at all what the Bible means. Here's a definition that I'd like to have you consider. It's this. Joy is a deep satisfaction that comes from knowing that God is in control, even when circumstances seem to be out of control. The key is this. Joy is knowing that God is in control. If you know that, you can be satisfied at a very deep level, even while you weep over what is happening around you and to you. And so I ask you this practical question. How can we go on when sorrow has paid us a visit? What shall we do when tragedy strikes and we feel like giving up? Well, let me share with you five suggestions. Suggestion number one, remind yourself of the promises of God. That simply means dwell much in the Word of God. Talk to yourself and forcibly call to mind the promises of God's presence and comfort and care and His unerring purpose to mold you into the likeness of His Son. In the darkest hours, the promises will not come easily. You must do whatever it takes to feed your own soul with the bread of life. That's suggestion number two. Give thanks for what you can give thanks for. Now, there are times when Thanksgiving seems almost impossible and sometimes even kind of crazy. I mean, sin in all of its ugliness sometimes comes as an unwanted guest. Should we give thanks for sin? No, absolutely not. But even if you cannot give thanks for 99% of what's happening, focus on the 1% you clearly see and give thanks to God for that. Here's suggestion number three. Refuse to give in to bitterness and despair. And here I'm speaking of the conscious choices of the heart. Too many times we speak as if we were involuntarily overwhelmed and had no choice but to be bitter or angry or hostile or to give up our faith in God. It's better to say, I could give in to anger, but by God's grace I'll choose a higher road. I could turn away from my Lord, but I'm not going to do that. 
Here's suggestion number four. Choose to believe in God. Well, that means exactly what it says. Believe in his goodness and his love and his kindness. I mean, faith is a choice made by the heart. And if you want to believe, you believe. And the angels of heaven will come to your aid. And here's suggestion number five. Make up your mind to go on with life. I mean, the past and whatever pain is caused is gone. We can't go back. I mean, so don't, don't try. You can't live in yesterday. And you can't even live in today. The voice of God always calls us onward toward tomorrow. Now, here's a simple principle. I, I can't go back. I can't stay here. I must go forward. See, even if we want to go back, we can't. And uh, we can't stay where we are. God's call is always onward and forward, moving out by faith into the unknown future. This is not easy, but it must be done. And when we do it, we'll discover joy springing up to refresh our souls as we march onward with the Lord. Well, next let's consider the reason for this. James 1 verse 3 says, Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now, every word here is crucial. That phrase, you know, refers not to head knowledge. Sometimes we might call it book learning. But the heart knowledge, the kind gained by years of experience. And some things we learn from books, others in the so-called school of hard knocks. This lesson comes from daily life when we put our faith to the test. And the word testing refers to the process by which gold ore was purified. In order to separate the gold from the dross, the ore was placed into a furnace and heated until it melted. The dross rose to the surface, was skimmed off, leaving only pure gold. And that's a picture of what God is up to in our fiery trials. You know, we all have to undergo some furnace time sooner or later. And some of us will spend an extended time in the furnace of affliction. But the result is the pure gold of Christ-like character. Job spoke of this experience in chapter 23, verse 10. He knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Now, what is God trying to do when he allows his children to go through hard trials and deep suffering? I'll give you a number of answers. One, I mean, God wants to purge us of sin and to purify us of iniquity. Another thought is that God uses suffering to test our faith. I mean, will you serve God when things aren't going your way? Will you hold on to the truth when you feel like giving up? Or how about this one? God uses times of difficulty to humble us. When things aren't going well, we tend to get kind of puffed up and conceited. But let the darkness fall. And guess where we are? We're on our knees crying out to God. Or how about this? God definitely uses hard times to prepare us to minister to others. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says he comforts us so that we can comfort other people. And I know a lot of Christians whose greatest ministry has come from sharing with others how God helped them through tough times. Maybe one more. I believe that God uses hard times to prepare us for a new understanding of his character. In the furnace, we discover God's goodness in a way we had never expected or experienced it before. And you know, until your faith is put to the test, it remains somewhat theoretical. You never know what you believe until hard times come. Then you find out, for better or for worse. When the phone rings with bad news, or when your son ends up in prison, or your best friend betrays you, or you lose your job, or your parents suddenly die. When life comes apart at the seams, then you discover what you truly and actually believe in the depths of your soul. Until then, your faith is speculative because it's untested. You can talk about heaven 
but you'll discover whether or not you believe in it when you stand by the casket of someone you love. God's great design is to produce perseverance. The Greek word here is hupomone, which sometimes translated as endurance or steadfastness or patience. Now, in the book of Revelation, it describes the faith of those brave saints who would not take the mark of the beast. Thus, it kind of describes a certain kind of battle-tested faith that stands up under withering fire from the enemy and does not cut and run. Well, now let's take a look at the promise that comes in verse 4. Perseverance must finish his work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, trials are what leads to a product. Perseverance requires work and faith and hope and determination to hold on to our faith, even when the world seems to be falling apart. Perseverance says, I'll not give up no matter what happens or how bad life may be. I hold on because I, pro- because I promised and because I believe the Lord has something in store for me. The reward of such stubbornness is genuine spiritual maturity. When trials have finished their work, we'll not lack anything the Lord wants us to have. If we need faith or hope or love, we'll have it. If we need any of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit, it will be produced. Nothing will be left out or left behind. The great danger is that we will try to short-circuit the process by running away from our problems. The message, transla- message translation puts this part of the, word, the verse this way. Don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Now, that's a good advice, but not always easy to follow. So let me wrap up with this. When trials come, and they will, there is something we can't know and something we can know. Let's talk about the can't know. We can't always know why things happen the way they do. No matter how hard we try to figure things out, there will always be many mysteries in life. God does not always explain himself to us. After all, he's God and we're not. As we go through life, we can look back and see many blank spots where we wish God would just fill them in. And most of the time, we'll carry those unfilled blanks with us all the way to heaven. Now, let's talk about something we can know. When hard times come, we can know that God is at work in our trials for our benefit and for his glory. To say that is to say nothing more than the words of Romans 8.28. For the children of God, all things do work together for the good of God according to his plan for our life. Now, sometimes we'll see it. Oftentimes, we'll simply have to take it by faith. But it's true whether we believe it or not. And so, friends, we're kind of left with this. There's no growth without struggle. As long as we live in a fallen world, we cannot fight against this law and win. As someone once said, your arms are way too short to box with God. Now, essentially, you know, there are two types of people. One, there are the timid, those who fear the trials of life. And our our message to them is to be of good cheer and fear not. I mean, nothing can touch you that does not first pass through the hands of your Heavenly Father. And he... And he who loves you will never give you more than you can bear. And then second, there are those who are suffering right now. I mean, should we pity them? I'd say no. We should rather congratulate them that God has counted them worthy of such great trials. Nothing is wasted, not your pain, your tears, your confusion, or even your doubts. Receive with joy what God has given you and bless his name. Now, in order to make this as simple as possible, I'd like to boil my sermon down to just two words. And you know, After almost 20 minutes, you're probably saying, why don't you just start with these two words and get it over with? But I'm going to put it this way. When hard times come, when trials fall upon us and we seem to fall upon them, 
when the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune knock us to the ground, what should we do? Well, remember these two words, pray and stay. Don't run or hide. Don't shake your fist at God and argue with the Almighty. Don't waste time trying to make excuses or empty promises, and don't try to bargain your way out of trouble. It doesn't work, and you don't have anything to bargain with anyway. Instead, pray. Spend time with the Lord. Ask God, what are you trying to teach me? Speak, Lord, and I'll listen to your voice. And then stay. Be patient. Don't rush God. (laughs) After all, you can't. Refuse to run away. Affirm that God is at work, even though he seems invisible and life seems chaotic and you don't do anything, and don't do anything foolish or hasty. The Christian way is not an easy way, and any representations to the contrary are absolutely false. There is an abundant life to be had, and there is spiritual victory, and there is joy in the Lord and the filling of the Spirit, but those things don't come in spite of our trials. In various ways, we will all struggle every day as we make our earthly pilgrimage. In a fallen world, there can be no other way. And for the most part, we can't choose our trials or avoid most of them, but we can choose how we respond. That part is up to us. Joy or bitterness, forgiveness or anger, trust or unbelief, faith or fear, love or hatred, kindness or malice, temperance or self-indulgence, gentleness or stubbornness, mercy or revenge, peace or worry, hope or despair. Our perspective makes all the difference. Our trials are not sent to make us fall. They are sent to cause us to soar by grace. They are not meant to defeat us, but to be the means to a greater spiritual victory. They are not intended to make us weaker, but to make us stronger. They are not sent to hurt us, but to help us. Therefore, friends, we should not complain when hard times come. We should rejoice, and we will rejoice if we believe what God has said. Every hard trial is another step on the stairway that leads from earth to heaven. I wish all of you a very happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy time with your family and friends. And until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion.